everybody before we jump into the podcast for both the audio and video listeners i just want to clarify a sort of verbal mishap that we had on the pod basically referring to what we think is the best deck amber ruby um did get our colors mixed up and said amber amethyst just a bit of a habit but just to be clear um so you understand what's going on in the pod when we say amber amethyst we mean amber ruby the red purple control deck I think in the future, I'm just going to use the color names. These uh, Sapphire, Amber, Emerald, they get very confusing for me sometimes, I guess, now that we're in the beginning of the game. Anyway, just want to clarify, so when you hear Amber Amethyst, it is Amber Ruby that we are referring to. Apologies for that, um, and thanks so much for listening. Let's get into the pod. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to episode 15 of Podcana. This week, we're going to be discussing Constructed, what are the best decks, what's performing, fundamentals of Constructed, what goes into making uh, a deck good, what goes into making specific colors better than others. And for that, we've brought on Mr. Sasha Markovic, um, sort of a Constructed deck builder for a while now. I know you've been posting a lot about Lorcana decks on your Twitter and just a card game, sort of extraordinary, right? Competitive card game player for probably more than 10 years. I don't know if that's any indication of how old you are, but in a an accomplished player at that in multiple games so i don't know i definitely look to you sasha as one of the you know i don't know the thought leaders when it comes to early deck building in a new game right um you know a lot of success in flesh and blood success in magic etc so i just want to dive into lakana but before we get into that sasha thank you for coming on to the podcast um yeah it's good to talk to you again i know we had you on a few months ago yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, that glowing introduction was much better than last time, so I don't know what's happened since then and now, but uh, I appreciate it so much. And uh, welcome, Carl, as well. It's really great to see you here. Uh, we miss Flake always, but uh, we'll pull one out for him. But awesome. Let's kick off. All right, so let's just talk about fundamentals um, of what what sort of makes a deck good. Like, what are things you, you want to be doing in a card game like Lurkana? And I think that... Uh, the first thing that jumps out to me is card advantage, especially in a game like this. Sasha, you've talked about going negative on cards, but I think it's turn seven if you put down a card in ink every single turn. And Lorcana has a bit of a stigma towards it. Um, if you've played the starter deck version of the game or just any sort of limited version of the game, maybe the sealed deck, you be you quickly find yourself in what we like to call top deck fiesta. And I think that the most... Uh, the highest performing and debatably the most powerful color right now, Amethyst, utilizes card draw the most. And I feel like this is actually spreading across you know, more colors than just Amethyst. I've also had a lot of success with Amber, which does have access to a lot of card draw in, in sort of the form of Stitched Carefree Surfer, Rapunzel, etc. How, how powerful do you feel that card draw is in Lorcana, Sasha? Uh, I think it's probably the highest or biggest defining factor to victory um card draw and card advantage is just the bread and butter of card games if i have more cards than you and if i get to play them all i'm much more likely to win mm-hmm. uh it's pretty much that simple and then there's a lot of nuance in like um do i draw the right cards and that's kind of called variance or just strategic planning and tactics yeah and in regards to amethyst do you agree that that is the most powerful color right now and what do you think are some of the like the marquee cards of amethyst what what is holding that color up above the others uh well one card comes to mind which is uh friends on the other side it mm-hmm. just blatantly says it draw two cards uh it doesn't get more simpler than that it's uh more cards than you use and you get more back um yeah, that's pretty much the linchpin, I think. Yeah, you pair that with Maleficent, it feels like you're doing something legitimately unfair. And then, of course, you know, the color has access to items that draw cards. So you have the Cauldron, which allows you to opt to on your deck, put a card on the bottom, put a card on the top, so a little bit fix your draws. And then you have access to the Magic Mirrors, which are the thing about Lorcana is that if you looked at all of the cards in a vacuum, or at least not holistically, I think you would gravitate towards cards like Dr. Facile and like things like that um, as being some of the more powerful things you can do in the game. But the issue is, is that creatures or characters, whatever you want to call them, are interactable. While items are, they are, but not really, right? It's very hard to interact with items. So you, you, you place your permanence like the magic mirror on the board, like the cauldron on the board, and your opponent really needs to be playing a specific color to deal with that, and then also needs to draw that specific card. Seems like that is sort of the the paradigm shift in Lorcana right now, as you see decks utilizing these permanents via items to create engines and get advantage over their opponent. Do you agree with that, Sasha? 
Yeah, totally. Like um, games like this, where you build up a board state that retains over time, you want to you know retain more things over time, and items stay there longer than anything else. And because Lorcana, you can't mix any color of ink with any color of ink. Some matchups, they just will not have an answer possible in their deck. So your items just get to run free, unchecked. Mm-hmm. Carl, I want to pass over to you. From your sort of constru- constructed testing so far, I know you're preparing to go to a tournament here um, in the next week or so. What have you found to be some of the most powerful things you can be doing in the games? And what have you personally gravitated t- towards as sort of like a color combo that you enjoy playing, both for, I guess, fun, but mainly for uh, you know competitive advantage, winning, etc.? Uh, well, it's so clear that Amethyst is incredibly strong, like you guys said, with the card draw from the Maleficent and the Friends either side. Uh, also, I've been playing against a lot of people running Elsa. Elsa is an extremely powerful card. I think everyone's kind of realizing that at the moment. Uh, but my personal favorite kind of color combination that I've been exploring at the moment is definitely uh, yellow-gray or amber and steel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually a deck that we'll probably get into in a little bit here. And a lot of what you want to do in this type of deck is you utilize cards like Ariel, where you can kind of get some songs. So it's kind of like an, another uh, type of deck where you can still consistently draw cards, like you said, with cards like Rapunzel and Stitch. You're not going down the Amethyst route, but then you have great tools in there like Tinkerbell, probably one of the best uh, super rares in the game at the moment. And then also, interesting, you were talking about uh, ways to deal with items. Beast, which I know is a card that we all uh, really enjoy at the moment. It's a 5-4-4 four, four. that just banishes... Uh, chosen item so i think that could be a quite a good counter to that kind of uh, amethyst list so curious to see if we're going to see it in the future but yeah, that's that's the type of combination that i've been enjoying the <clears> most so far and i'll probably it depends i i might bring that to, to, to the tournament but I mean, Amethyst Ruby just seems to be like the most dominant deck at the moment, especially in like the mirror matches. Yeah, Beast is also an inkable card, which is really, which mm. is the most interesting thing about it. So you have this toolbox, you have this toolbox ability that exists on a body, right? So it exists on a four-four body that can quest for two, which is not bad. But you can also ink it if you if you have it in a dead matchup, which is what makes Beast so powerful. The Lorcana meta is actually extremely healthy right now. I just want to point that out. So if we look at what would be, I guess, classified by most people as the best deck, that's going to be Amethyst Ruby Control, and we'll break down that that exact list as well. But there's other sort of archetypes actually sort of coalescing at the top there. So you talk about Amber Steel, which is a fundamentally a mid-range deck. The reason why it's so good is because it does have access to card draw, but it's a great tempo deck. You have that Ariel, the 2-3, that can sing five-cost songs, which is just absolutely crazy. There's the Lemon Lime Aggro deck, so the, uh, the, the Amber Emerald Aggro deck that is seen a lot on ladder. And then there's also combo decks. There's Emerald Steel, Turbo Mill, so you can mill out your opponent. There's also Turbo Ramp in the form of Sapphire Steel, which is pretty good, utilizing Bells, utilizing um, the Fish item. I can't remember the exact name, Fish Bone. To sort of like, yeah, yeah, cheat things into into your ink, then play a whole new world, redraw, etc. So you have like a multiple combo decks represented as well. So the meta is actually very, very healthy. One thing I would say, though, is I do think that there is a deck that exists above the rest right now. Um, The top two are a little bit close, but then after that, I think that the gap becomes a bit bigger. So I want to talk about the best deck, which is Amber amethyst and i think it's by a decent margin um this is a hardcore control list uh i'm just going to go through the exact cards first of all (laughs) this is a 64 to 64 plus card deck people are playing over 60 cards because in the mirrors um just due to the way these decks function there's not a lot of variance actually like the decks kind of play out the you know their entire card um the entire deck against each other because it goes so long. They both have engines, etc. Like one can high roll the other by getting access to Magic Mirror early, getting access to Collagen earlier. But outside of that, the game is actually not, it doesn't really feel like a card game. It feels like chess. It feels like an attrition based on resources and it goes very, very long. So they play 64, uh, 64 plus cards to prevent that fatigue. But the list. So first off, it's four Archimedes, which is the 2-2 purple bird, right? It's just, this is a resource card, effectively. Gaston, uh, Gaston Arrogant Hunter, uh, 4-2. Um, Reckless is, is able to clear sort of pesky threats. So you think about the Lemon Lime Aggro deck. The Lemon Lime Aggro deck will often play Lilo on turn one. Then it will play Simba. That's their best turn two. The 2-3 two, with Bodyguard. Gaston can help you clear that, get that out of the way. We have Elsa Snow Queen, which is a 2-3. Um, and it can tap to exert the character, but also can shift into the big Elsa 
so especially against mid-range strategies, aggro strategies, this is a very, very good card, and shifting can be the correct decision, but we'll get into the, sort of the philosophy of shifting um, later. But Elsa exerting a card, uh, tap to exert a card, is also functionally removal in this deck. Very, very powerful. You have Maleficent, um, Sorceress, which we talked about earlier. This is the 2-2 that costs 3, draws a card. Rafiki, Sasha, I know you're a big fan of Rafiki, um, yeah, comes in, has, has Rush, also removal. Aladdin, the 2-2, two, two, um, 3 cost, that comes in and takes a lore away from your opponent, but can also, honestly, this is the real shift target, shifting into the big 5, uh, five cost Aladdin, um, 7 cost, but you can shift it at 5, and then being able to attack your opponent on turn 5 with that, take 2 lore away, clear something off the board, it's just super, super powerful. You basically always have to be playing around it, you always have to be thinking about them shifting into the, the bigger Aladdin if you're playing against Ruby Amethyst. Jafar, this is sort of a filler card for sure, um, the 0-5 that gets plus 1 attack for each card in your hand, but does get you 2 lore when it when it taps or just a quest. The Queen, additional card draw, it's a 4-5, five, 5 cost. Um, you have Maui, Maui's honestly one of the best cards in the deck. Maui, Rush, so we talk about Rafiki being good, Maui's good for the same reason, but Maui at a 6-5 body clears everything pretty much in the game. Talked about why Aladdin's good. Elsa, Spirit of Winter. I mean, this is like the card. This is a control deck, and it aims to keep the opponent sort of in check. It aims to build engines and basically maintain board state as much as possible, but then extend the game out over the long game and get sort of continual advantage through its better cards. And Elsa is the top end that allows you to do that. Taps down two things, quest for three lore, four, six body, just absolutely crazy card. After that, we have Mickey Mouse, Brave Little Taylor. This is the 5-5. Five, five. Basically, just quest for a lot. Put it on the board. Your opponent must answer. Might be sort of getting beat prepared out of them, getting dragon fires. Like I said, if you go into that control V's... Control V, Control Mirror, it's very attrition-based. So, you know, a Mickey Mouse taking out a B prepared out of your opponent's hand is very, very powerful. And lastly, for the for the characters, is Maleficent, Monstrous Dragon, 7-5, 2 lore. But ultimately, the, why you play it is because when you play this character, you choose to banish chosen character. So it is a 2-for-1 on a body at 9 cost. And this deck will frequently get, get up to that 9 inkwell. Then for the spells, just real quick, we have Befuddle, which is effectively you just ink it. If you're playing against aggro, it can buy you some tempo. Dragonfire, spot removal. Friends on the other side, card draw. Be prepared. Board wipe. Wrath of God from Wrath of God from Magic the Gathering. Best card in the deck, probably. Um, Shield of Virtue. This allows you to untap your character after it is attacked or quest. And this is very powerful. Great Aladdin. with Aladdin. Yeah. yeah. Great with Aladdin. Magic Mirror. Um, card draw. The Ursula's Cauldron. Opting atop of the deck. And White Rabbit's Pocket Watch. Which functions basically as removal in the late game. So say you have something like 10, 11 resources. You can play down that Aladdin, not even need to shift it, give it rush, you know, have a four lore shift and clear something off the board. So yeah, that's a 64 card list. I know there is different permutations of this. You know, people play other cards, etc. But this is a pretty stock list. And I see this as the best deck in the metagame right now. I just want to get y'all's thoughts on that statement itself. Yeah, uh... From you playing it against me there, I, I kind of have to agree. It was very funny. So I played Brendan earlier, and uh, it was kind of a similar matchup, except I was playing Amber Ruby. So I had a lot of the same cards in ter terms of the Ruby stuff, but I was playing, you know, Hades and stuff like that. And I was kind of doing some cool stuff there where you actually ended up doing like an infinite loop Hades, which was which was kind of fun. But um, yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, the reason why Brendan came out on top was because he had those card draw items and he had that draw engine that just kept going and going and going. So I could keep using my resources, but eventually I would run, I would run it, run it out of gas, and then he would just blow me away. So, uh, yeah, from from my experience, I think it's definitely the the top list at the moment. Like you said, there's definitely um, variations and alt alternate lists you can play different cards for for different reasons. But yeah, that that definitely seems like the 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 general stock list so far. What do you think, Sasha? Yeah, like uh, I think it also just kind of comments to the early metagame as well. Like when games are young, doing the most powerful things that are obvious and don't require a lot of hoops to jump through tend to be the most prominent and successful. Like this gives you card advantage, this gives you the biggest threats, and it has consistency. Uh, that's pretty much everything you could ask for. So Ruby Amethyst all the way, mm. at least for now. Yeah. How do you think you beat this list, right? Because I think the idea, I don't, I don't know if there's any other control list that can sort of rival it, at least not in terms of matchup spread. I do think there are control lists that can beat it potentially in the control v control matchup. You know, maybe playing something with steel that has access to breaking items. Um, Amethyst steel can be a tough matchup because they can effectively get items out while you can't, but you don't have access to be prepared. 
nevertheless, Sasha, how do you think that, you know, if you're looking at uh, competing in this meta right now and you don't want to play uh, Amethyst Ruby, what sort of decks should you be looking at to, to combat this? So there are a few things that you just need as a prerequisite, which is you have to have your own engine that they can't interact with or you have to interact with theirs. So whether that is playing Beast, which is just this all-star, like it, it, you can ink it, either like Quest for Two has a decent body and it destroys engines, that, that card is just amazing. Or if you just have ways that they can't interact. Like there is no equivalent of haste in this game to Quest. Like we have Rush to challenge. The closest thing we have is like Aladdin or like the Simba and the Takar or the Eye of... Um, uh, yeah. Eye of the Fates. Yeah. yeah. I have the fates, yeah, yeah. That's like kind of a, a pseudo haste if you already have something on the table. Um, so yeah, those are things that their control decks can't really interact with, but those don't exist right now. So maybe we get that in the future, but it's also pretty powerful to be able to just gain lore unexpectedly against an opponent. Yeah, I think you're actually, if you're not playing the mid-range deck, which we'll go over after this, the Steel Amber deck, I think your best bet is potentially to go under the deck. Um, and I mean that by playing an aggro deck. So playing this sort of lemon-lime aggro list. Uh, by the way, all the lists will be linked in the description. But this list, they can basically you know, put enough pressure on board that, you know, the control, the control list can't get its engines going, can't play its big cards like Elsa, can't play things like Maleficent. So is left with functionally a lot of dead cards. You try to beat them before something like turn seven, right? Or effectively beat them before turn seven, before they can be prepared you. Um, Lemon Lime Aggro. I think it's a strong list, to be honest. Um, and it does fundamentally powerful things. It just lacks sort of access to a draw engine. Um, and because of that, I think that it loses to both itself and terribly loses to the mid-range list. So like this list against any sort of mid-range list, it seems like it's basically hopeless, um, especially if they're able to clear things like Lilo pretty easily, which the the mid-range steel list can, right? Because they, they shift into Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell clears mm -hmm. your, Lilo, your Lilo, even if you're protecting it with a Simba. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's Have you guys had any experience playing this Emerald amber aggro list i know you're a big fan of kuzco kawa yeah so i haven't played the lemon lion list i've heard a lot about it and um i faced it a little bit on on pixelborn um but i've only played like steel emerald which kind of has like kuzco and hans and that, that kind of type of list which it, that that's a really fun list by the way as well that like if you guys want to try something different i recommend checking that out because they can do a lot of fun things as in like this cards like flynn rider and cheshire cat that like you just kind of build up a, a board and eventually they have to deal with it but then if you're just facing the ruby amethyst list they just be prepared and everything everything's gone right so uh yeah i mean that could definitely be a way that you you try and beat it like if you can get as much stuff down as quickly as possible with that lemon lime list then uh, you could do it, but I, I personally have not kind of seen that matchup, so I'm curious to see how that will roll out. Um, yeah, I, I'm really, I'm really um, excited to talk about this Amber Steel list, though, because I think it can, it can definitely do some exciting things. And like, like you were saying earlier, Brendan, I think it does extremely well against pretty much every deck besides Ruby Amethyst that I've seen so far, anyways. Yeah, actually, Sasha, I don't know if you, if you just feel free to interject if you have anything to say about Lemon Lime Aggro, but um this steel amber list is i think like honestly it's up for debate as the best list the best list in the game i, I think that ruby amethyst edges it out ultimately but this list is very very powerful and if we look at in terms of matchup spread i think i would rather if we were in a healthy metagame say that like the top four decks are represented 25 percent or sorry yeah 25 percent each i'd rather be on this this list than ruby amethyst but if you know the the field is 50% Ruby Amethyst, I would, I would be, pro I'd be rather be playing mirrors. And so again, this link, the link to this deck list will be in the description, but fundamentally what this list tries to do is basically play out on curve, which is, it's, it's kind of funny. So you want to have like a nice one, two, three, four, but more just one, three, four. And usually you have the one just to clear kind of pesky threats. So in the form of Captain Hook or Prince Eric, which is a two cost, just to clear anything that could be nasty on board, like an early Lilo, you don't want to not have an, uh, not have a access to sort of a clear for that. But then it plays Ariel and Ariel is actually kind of a key card in this deck. So Ariel comes down as a three cost, two, three. It lets you look at the top four and find a song. And this deck is built in a way that you have enough songs that you should be hitting it 
consistently. So Aria effectively replaces itself. So it's sort of like Maleficent, but then it has a keyword called Singer 5. And Ariel can actually sing and cast all the songs that you have in your deck. So even the five cost ones, things like Grab Your Sword, um, things like that. And it's very, very powerful to do uh, with the three cost to sing Grab Your Swords and clear the entire board, especially against aggro. That's why I think this list is like, Probably 75-80% against aggro, just flat. Not even count, not even taking any variables into account, just absolutely counters it. You have a you know, Tinkerbell, which we talked about, is a is a card that is useful on its own, but also you can shift four into the big Tinkerbell, which will do one damage to everything. And if you shift into it, you can attack something, you attack, you kill it, you do it, deal another two damage. Just so much board clear, so much control. Um, your four costs are both in the form of Hans, uh, 13th in the line sorry and then rapunzel gifted with healing and rapunzel is really the backbone of the stack to be honest rapunzel uh, honestly we can well we'll do a little debate what we think the best cards in the game are right now but i think the rapunzel might be it um basically one five body they can quest for two but heal three damage and for each damage that it heals you can draw a card so consistently you're going to play rapunzel and draw an additional card but it is not uncommon whatsoever to draw two or three cards especially in the context of having things like hans on the board because hans says whenever this character quests you may deal one damage chosen character so you can ping your own characters so you can ping your own characters then play rapunzel then draw three cards which is very very powerful the the top end of this deck effectively is that stitch carefree surfer so your opponent can play around stitch carefree surfer they can try to use removal to keep you off two characters even if they're using it inefficiently but your top end of playing a four eight that quest for two and effectively draws two cards most of the time is absolutely busted like it's so hard for most for most decks to compete with that um and even the control decks even the control decks will struggle to out card advantage you when you play this deck um, because this deck draws so many cards and it has that toolbox sort of option in the form of beast to blow up the mirrors so while i say that ruby amethyst is a little bit better than this list i do think this list is extremely competitive against it i think it's a 55 45 at best for me amethyst and this list is very good so this also has cards like you have forgotten me which is a ridiculous card each opponent chooses and discards two cards i've had i've played this and hit two um what did i hit against you recently uh Kala? you hit me you played it and you hit my Cusco and the whole new world and i was like that's good yeah it's game because like when you get rid of that card it's like wow hitting yeah. multiple whole new worlds like it's this card is really really good it, it's at its worst against control sometimes right um because control won't care about discarding this card it has the engine etc but against aggro it's just like it feels like it's an auto win if you cast this card one thing i want to note is that the songs in this deck grab your sword hakuna mafkata part of your world be our guest you pretty much only cast grab your sword in part of our uh part of your world be our guest and Hakuna Matata are effectively resource cards most of the time. Obviously, you can cast them, but what you're doing is you're playing Ariel and you're basically you're replacing itself with a card that you will now ink. You don't you don't really mm -hmm. play Hakuna Matata. Sasha, I'm not sure if you've had any had a chance to sort of play this list, but I just want to get your thoughts on it um, and just from like a fundamental standpoint and how it can compete in the metagame. Totally, um, just like kind of how I alluded to beforehand. Uh, half the cards in this deck are effectively Maleficent Sorceress in disguise, like the Ariel in particular, and uh, you know there's the Impulse variant, mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure what it's called um, but yeah, all these cards replace and churn over and they stay on the table and you know progress the game state, so that is like the next way to, you know, attack the metagame I would suppose, but yeah, like you're totally right, like these cards just keep replacing themselves, they keep doing the things and they pretty much eat anything that's below them. It's like lower on the curve compared to Ruby Amethyst, which is higher on the curve. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it is perfect mid-range deck to find on the day one. Yeah. And a lot well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of this, just like the smash in this deck as well, to have a card like that that can still offer a bit of removal, right? Because we said like the interactability is so important in a game like Lorcana to be able to deal with pesky things that you can just like, you know, throw three damage out. And it's even why I love Hans in this deck as well, right? Hans seems like such a really cool card to... You know, you're going to be questing him anyways, and then when you quest him, you just get a really good advantage from him, like, as well, which is, like, super sick. Uh, looking at Moana in this list as well, like, she, she's good because she's obviously three lore and stuff. I'm assuming the main reason you're playing Moana in, in this list is so you can, like, sing twice. Is that correct? Because you don't really want to ready your princesses again most of the time. Well, I guess it's just to protect them, right? 
Yep, to protect them. Yeah. Um, also, Quest for Three. So, Mana's a card that I wasn't playing in the version of the list that I played. Um, but, I mean, this version, I mean, it's totally legitimate. Like, you can play the Mana, you can protect them, um, etc. One thing I want to say about this list is, we talk about the card engine. Uh, like, the card draw, things are placing themselves, Rapunzel's drawing, you know, way too many cards than they should be. Uh, th- this list, like, fundamentally just has so much board presence and board removal. Like, it has good stats. Um, and then in, on those good stats, it has, you know, Hans that's pinging things as Tinkerbells that's hitting things for one, then killing something after you shifted it, hitting something for two. Like the board presence and board clear of this deck is just absolutely ridiculous. You couple that with the things like the smash, but ultimately the grab your swords, because grab your swords can be sung by your three cost Ariel, which is absolutely insane. So on the same turn that, you know, you do grab your, you can also shift Tinkerbell and then have Tinkerbell sing grab your swords, which is crazy. So you're doing three damage to everything on the board. Um, yeah, ultimately the deck, it is fundamentally a mid-range deck. The mulligan is very, very easy. I think that, you know, mulligan is one of those concepts in Lorcana that most people will probably get wrong for a while uh, because it is confusing because the mulligan is much more powerful than any other card game you've probably played. But this deck is very easy to mulligan. You basically look for one, two, three, or one, three, four, or two, three, four, and you just look to curve out. And that that's sort of enough for this deck. You just ship back the sort of the high cost stuff. You ship back all the songs usually because your RL is ultimately going to be grabbing them. And the way that this is this deck is structured in, in terms of ratios is the idea is when you play Ariel, you have a very, very good chance of hitting a song every single time. That's why we have things like Hakuna Matata in there, which looks like a dead card. You're like, why is Hakuna Matata in my deck? So Ariel can grab it and then ink it. Um, and you have a bit of recursion in the form of part of your world to grab you know toolbox threats back. So yeah, I think that this deck is very good and is actually... Very good against... I mean, it's good against Amethyst Ruby. I don't know about very good, but it can definitely compete. You can win a lot of games versus Amethyst Ruby. Um, but I would say in terms of matchup spread for the rest of the metagame, this this deck just absolutely destroys everything else. It destroys, you know, Turbo Ramp, you know, Blue Red... Uh, sorry, Sapphire Steel Ramp. Um, it destroys other mid-range decks, and it just absolutely... Lemon Lime, yeah. I'm, Lemon Lime has, like, I think it's actually like a... It almost has zero chance for this deck. It, it's absolutely... <laughs> Absolutely crazy, um, mm. Sasha. What do you What do you think is the best card in the first set of Lorcana? That's a loaded question because there's a lot of context and perspective and what people value. Like you could argue for impact, you could argue for consistency. Uh, I personally think long term it's going to be a whole new world. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, I think the card that does the most to like the metagame and to the decks is Friends on the Other Side. The card with the most impact when it hits the table, I would say it's probably the Shift Elsa, the the big one. Uh, yeah, there's a few angles that you could take, but I don't think anything's really right or wrong. I think we just kind of have, you know, a gameplay experiences because the game is very young. Like, I could even see Magic Mirror being like the card advantage card that glues things together. But it does have a lot of risk as well because it's uninkable. So mm-hmm. we can get into that as well. Like, the... The Ruby Amethyst deck only running less than four is like a very interesting thing to think about. Yeah, talk to me about uninkables and the cost of uninkables in a deck. So if we look at the Steel Amber deck, it has almost zero uninkables in the deck. Um, that And that's kind of like the core pitch of the deck is that you can pretty much ink anything uh, and you're not going to be running into clunky hands. The mid-range deck needs to play on curve. It needs to play efficiently. It can't just be skipping turns. But if we go to the Ruby Amethyst deck, like, there are a decent amount of uninkable cards in that deck in the form of Be Prepared, Magic Mirror, Dragonfire, Elsa, etc. So talk to me a little bit about the cost of uninkable cards in a deck and, like, where you sort of see the correct ratio being at this point. Yeah, that's also, like, a super-loaded hypergeometric math question as well. Because uh, as you add uninkable cards to your deck, what you're fundamentally doing is decreasing consistency because what you're betting on is like, I'm playing this card at this slot in the curve. So not each uninkable card is equal. So uninkable cards with a higher cost have a much higher detriment to your consistency than un- lower uninkable cards. For example, Fire the Cannons, that is a very um, low th- um, risk uninkable card. You do have the requirement that your opponent needs a character. So if they're playing against some weird combo deck that doesn't play characters for whatever reason, that is like a brick. And that's what you don't want. You don't want bricks. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to say. Uh, but what you pretty much are betting on is like, this is my plan. This uninkable card goes at this curve, this curve, this curve. And then there's the hidden asterisk of stuff like Magic Mirror. It's like, you don't really necessarily want to play that on turn two because you're not gaining value from it until the very late game where, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of both out of cards like four or five turns later and now you're reaping the rewards. 
So it is kind of fun to say. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of not playing Magic Mirror on turn two and ephemeral card gaming concepts that you can't really articulate, talk to me about tempo in Lorcana and how important it is to play effectively, like play effective cards to maintain tempo, to maintain board state, etc. Because like you said, let's say you have Magic Mirror in hand and you have a, you, you, but you have also have Gaston and your opponent is playing a sort of mid-range or aggressive list is contesting the board and you opt to not play the Magic Mirror, you play the Gaston. Talk to me about why that's important, just the concept of tempo in this game. Yeah, tempo is really important because that is like, you know, the funnel to victory. If you fall behind on playing cards to the table, uh, you pretty much double the value of your opponent's cards. If you break down the math, if you play like a, a card every along the curve and quest with them, uh, you gain 21 lore by turn 7 or something like that. So that is a really um, important frame of reference because then you realize, okay, this is the, the buffer window. If I let this card quest twice, um, does it tick them over the threshold of winning the game or not by a certain point if I choose not to interact? Because that is the risk as well. I'm going to choose to produce this engine early on so they don't have to worry about it later so I can play my high-impact cards. But do those high-impact cards catch up that the lore that they're gaining right now? That is the big fundamental question. Mm -hmm. And whether or not your deck is capable of interacting with the cards as soon as they play them, because uh, they will be able to pretty much quest uncontested if they just play like uh, any character and you just play a character to respond. That's why cards like Maleficent, Dragonfire, all those cards are really good because uh, they just deal with it right then and there. They don't ever really get to quest those cards, which is why Kuzco also has such high praise because of the ward. <laughs> yeah, we talked about Kuzco, I think, in the in the group chat. Carl was saying, hey, what do you guys think of Kuzco? It seems like a really good card. I was like, Kuzco is a good card, but the downside is you have to play Emerald. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have some takes on cards. I just want to get y'all's reactions and feedback. Um, be prepared. So be prepared, I think, is the most meta warping card or it is the most warping card like it is just uh, this pervasive card that exists if your opponent is playing ruby that you always need to be thinking about you always need to be playing around because the way be prepared works is like if your opponent has be prepared there is there's definitely correct ways and incorrect ways to play out your hand where you know in other games it might be correct to just play out all your threats curve out etc but if you when you think about it in the context of be prepared it can be correct to actually play suboptimally hold resources back in the form of characters and actually play them out later to try to draw be prepareds out and then have some sort of refill to the board because the worst case you can be in against a deck like ruby amethyst is like you've played out your entire hand hits turn seven they be prepared and now you have no cards and they have a draw engine etc what are y'all's thoughts on be prepared and any sort of well, like, do you have any advice on like how to play against it, how to think about it, etc.? You can take it. Oh, if you want. Cool. Yeah. So be prepared. Funnily enough, you have to be prepared against it because it's not nuanced at all. It just says destroy everything. You can't play around it or banish everything. Um, that's it. So it has this weird mental dance of. Am I going to, you know, create a facade that I don't have enough characters, play something weak, or play something strong to force them to have it? Because consistency is like a path to victory. Like, if you do that every single game, um, some number of games, they won't have it on that turn seven. And then it's for you to figure out how often they do have it. Is that actually detrimental to your plan? This is kind of the, the fun part of playtesting and just kind of figuring out the game and how it functions. Uh, so, yeah, and also, uh, you know, in the mirror match, like we kind of described it as chess. Be Prepared is like the most pivotal card because it is the only card that kind of guarantees two for ones or above. And, arc, you know, orchestrating scenarios where that happens is pretty much what guarantees you victory. Yeah, yeah. I've had a lot of games, like I've, I've previously used to playing Marvel Snap, I played a lot of Hearthstone. And in Hearthstone, there's a lot of cards like that where it's like, oh, if you just have this one card, clears the board, do they have it? Do they have it? And you have to kind of constantly play around it and kind of play your other cards until they feel like they have to do it. So I feel like me personally, I have a lot of experience against that because I've often, you know, I know that, okay, I don't want to develop too wide of a board because if they have this, then it's just like detrimental to me. So you want to play out your cards in a smart way. You don't want to commit to the board too much, but you want to play cards that are valuable. But then, you know, I mean, there was even a situation where I was playing against Brendan and he just played one Mickey. And obviously that card quest for four, right? So it's like, if I have no other answer, like a, um, a Dragonfire or whatever, then well maybe I maybe I have to be prepared it because it's it's that card's just so powerful right so it's about playing those certain cards in the right way and kind of nearly enticing your opponent to say if you have it it's it's pretty good if you play it now but I still have some resources I can kind of use 
uh, to to um, kind of come back after you use it. So yeah, it's just like you said, it's just like mind games, pretty much. If they have it, if they don't have it. And for for me, I'm I'm quite experienced in it, but for players that maybe like new to card games that will be jumping into Lord Kana for the first time, uh, it's going to be something that they will probably uh, have to have to learn for sure. I think the Ruby Amethyst Mirror comes down to uh, things like be prepared, but just fundamentally just outvaluing your opponent more often than not, right? Mm. It's just, it's a value game. Just the way that Lorcana works, like, it's just, there is variance in Lorcana. Like, you will play games where you get blown, well, an aggro deck will run you over, you'll draw bad cards, etc. But the Ruby Amethyst Mirror is like, there's not a lot of variance. One player can get access to their engine earlier and it can be very hard to compete in that case if you don't see your magic mirrors they have cauldron mirror set up on you with shield and you're like oh god but outside of that it literally feels like you're putting up a 64 card deck versus 64 card deck and you're playing like this this game of chess right and it's just you just have to find ways to outvalue your opponent at whether you're getting higher value be prepared you're dragon firing better targets um etc so it's it's a super technical matchup uh I want to get y'all's take on this. I think that a whole new world is the most overrated and overplayed card in Lorcana right now. Sasha. The most overrated, I mean, overrated card. Well, to be so, there's a degree. I'm not saying it's bad. It's terrible, right? But I think it is overrated. Like it's fun that like people overrate the card. What are your thoughts, Sasha? I mean, to some extent, I agree because I don't think we have the full tool set for it yet. Yeah, but. I played with a lot of Wheel of Fortune type effects in the past, and I know how abusive they can mm -hmm. be. And this one's a song, so you can play it for free. Uh, so I'm just waiting for the scale to tip and for just everything to fall over. Yeah. I think, uh, like, you, go ahead, Kama. So do, do you think that we're going to get some sort of like actual like mill package or mill, mill cards that are going to support that type of thing within set two? You well, think most definitely? They exist in set one. So there is a pretty powerful mill deck in the form of Emerald uh, Emerald Steel Mill. Uh, it's just not mm. super consistent. Yeah, I don't know. The thing that I think about a whole new world that a lot of people have played Magic in the past. They know about cards like Wheel of Fortune. They've played effects like this. And this is a powerful version of that too, right? Because you can play for free. Mm. I just see a lot of people playing Steel and they just slot this into their Steel deck and they just kind of play it when their hand is empty, which can be good. But if your opponent's hand is also empty and they're potentially ahead of you on ink, they're ahead of you on board, like you're asking for usually a bad scenario. Like you can outdraw them on that seven, but it is not that is a very symmetrical effect and the idea of a whole new world and the idea of why these cards can be so good is when you make that effect asymmetric right when you're getting drastically more value out of this card than your opponent is so there is a there is a deck that does this um it's called sapphire steel turbo ramp and it uses uh you know things like the fishbone i think that's the name of the card um mm -hmm. etc to basically play a bunch of those cards into ink get to turn five and then use a whole new world while their opponent has like four cards in deck and basically do it over and over again and they play their cards out so fast because they're able to ink two cards in a single turn um, and they have so many so much so many resources as a result of that that their opponent is not able to play out the seven card hand that's like that the, in the mill deck are the only real use cases where i'm like yeah a whole new world is good if a mid-range deck or an aggro version of steel plays it i'm like yeah, I don't know about that. It can work out, but it seems like uh, a lot of people are misusing it right now. I mean, yeah, I think you kind of nailed the two scenarios that where it can really thrive. You can uh, play your entire hand before they do and then play it. And then you've got like a differential. Like, so let's say you played like your six cards and they've only played three. You're up three cards. And their three cards that they discarded are more than likely high impact because they're higher up on the curve. Or um, this weird nuance which you picked up, if you chain whole new worlds into whole new worlds, um, you dump 7, 14, uh, 21 cards compared to them playing 6 cards over the 3 turns. So that is like the real insane level when you don't just look at Whole New World for the first um, you know, instance of it, but for the chaining instances because they kind of find each other. But chucking into your deck without a plan is probably the worst um, thing you can do for the, any card, not just a whole new world. Um, every card in your deck needs to have a purpose. Even if it is um, like Archimedes, which is, this is a resource card a lot of time until it's game two against an aggro deck and I can mulligan for it aggressively. Yeah. I think the best example, like you said, that every card has to um, have value in your deck is, is exactly what you said, Brennan, for the Amber Steel deck. Because anyone who looks at that deck like, why is Hakuna Matata on the deck? It does absolutely nothing. But it's like, no, it's there to be a resource, right? It's for the aerials to be able to, to throw it into your inkwell. And it's 
important for people to realize that yeah you can't just kind of throw this and that and then hope that it works out because like you said yes there's situations where that can work out and you can win the game from it but consistency is 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 always a thing to remember in card games you know yeah are there any cards that exist in the card pool that y'all sort of have your eyes on you think are maybe underplayed or underutilized you know that are coalescing around your brain that you're brewing with you know some decks that you think might work but haven't really come to fruition yet any cards well the one card that i'm super excited to break is the aerial that um readies with items like Mm. one day that card just has to have a fun archetype with it like some splinter twin type of nonsense but uh yeah, other than a whole new world breaking in the future, um, I'm happy drawing two cards and singing it for free with an Aladdin or something. I'm happy doing that. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Kawa? I think, uh, I mean, I really want to jump into like Emerald and try and see if I can do something good because I can see a lot of potential in it. Like, I, I do agree with, with you, Brandon. I don't know how you feel about it, uh, Sasha, that it, it seems like it's the worst color. It's not a bad color. Like, you can do some good things with it, but just compared to everything else, it just does not seem too impactful. But I think there's some cool things that you can do with it, uh, especially with cards like Cusco. Mother, Go- Mo- Mother Gothel, I think, is, like, a super, super cool card. I want to try to do something, like, uh, fun with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to be clear, I, I think I already know the answer to this question, but for any cards that have Ward on them, uh, it's not like a, a shield against be pre- be prepared, right? right? It's nope. just like it, they can't be. Yeah, it's 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 just that it can't be chosen. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I'm excited to try and explore that a little bit more. I know you were talking, uh, Brendan, about some of the like uh, Lady Tremaine decks. I think no, that, that's, that. that's from a long time ago. But there is a Lady Tremaine deck in the form of the Emerald Steel Mill deck. It does utilize Lady Tremaine to get back mm. to those uh, uh, whole new worlds, things like that. Um, so my my rogue deck, or like, a, I'm not even talking about a specific card, but there is a deck that I think is a bit of a dark horse and a rogue deck that people are not giving enough respect, which is um, Emerald Ruby Evasives. I think that deck is actually pretty good. Um, and we've seen like some people, some ladder players, some content creators start to pick up that deck. Um, there's just not a lot of interaction, right? Like you talk about Be Prepared and Be Prepared and the spot removal that exists in Ruby Amethyst, but... If your whole entire deck is pretty much designed to not interact, like, and you play to the board accordingly, like, the evasives can actually be pretty strong. And most of the other, like, honestly, most of the decks right now are not constructed to effectively beat evasive decks. That's sort of my rogue deck right now, I think. <laughs> but it's hard to say. Yeah. Go ahead, yeah I think that's a classic take. Like, um, evasion comes after everyone's, like, you know, figured out how to, you know, interact with each other. Um, Turning Maui into and Gastan into bricks. Imagine you just like turn their like highest rate cards into just like these do nothing things that are just yeah. gonna like rot in their hand or end up in the inkwell. Um, yeah, it's, it's super cool. Also, like the tricks you can do with um, the green Tinkerbell, like you can give their Simba evasive so that yeah, you can just I hit the Lilo straight away. Yeah, like, I saw that's that on really fun. today. Someone, someone was like, How does this interaction work? I'm like, Yeah, you can do some pretty cool things like that. Wait, explain sure. that interaction. Go ahead, Sasha. So this is this is Green Tinkerbell. When you play her, you can choose a character to gain evasive. Mm-hmm. So you can give an opposing bodyguard character um, evasive, so oh. that you can't legally challenge it, and then you get to like get around it. <laughs> mm. That's pretty funny. It's 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 this turn though. To be clear, it's not perma evasive. Truth. It's only this turn. Yeah, yeah. Perma would be. Pretty you only good. need one. <laughs> <laughs> perma would be pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah, I think that the yeah the evasive deck. So. I don't know. Right now, if y'all were going to play a tournament next weekend, we'll say, or the, this weekend, this upcoming weekend, what deck would you bring and why? Brandon, give me your, your deck. That's all I'd say. Well, I'd take Ruby. Oh, I think Ruby Amethyst. Yeah. Well, I would take Ruby Amethyst Control, but not maybe not for the reasons that you should maybe take it. I think that Ruby mm. Amethyst Control is a list uh, that is very much predicated on card game fundamentals, two for winning people, outvaluing your opponent throughout the game. And I think if you do that, you're going to win a vast majority of mirrors. I think the mirror is actually pretty low variance. And also to that, I think that it's a very strong deck against the rest of the field, right? Um, I don't think it's as favored as Amber Steels into some matchups, maybe into some of the aggro matchups, which will definitely show up at a local tournament if you go there, because those decks are cheap, and those decks are, yeah. you know, they are, they're often popular early in metagames. So 
I do think there would be a lot of people that would bring Ruby Amethyst Control just because it's the buzz. And I would be comfortable, I think, playing those mirrors with enough practice. And I think you can get huge edge on your opponents. Like, I think that you have a lot of agency with that deck to beat other players on that deck or even on other decks, even on the aggro decks, even on the mid-range decks. So that's sort of my thesis for Ruby Amethyst Control. It's also the deck that gives you the most agency as a player, which is fun if you like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. What about you, Sasha? Totally. Well, like, as technical as you may think I am, I like to try to win the tournament before sitting down. Yeah. So I'd probably just choose the thing that beats up on a Ruby Amethyst the most and just try to spike the matchups and hope people are scared of it and don't play the weaker matchups into it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's how I like the role. But if I can't find it, I'll just play the best deck, which is perceived to be Ruby Amethyst, and just try to win those games of chess. Mm -hmm. I think in, in like early tournaments like this, though, I mean, we just keep coming back to it, but I think that the Amber Steel is so good because of like the Tinkerbell and stuff like that. It, it just does so well against so many things. And yes, Ruby Amethyst does as well, but I feel like overall, you can't really go wrong with the Steel Amber list either because of the um, board control stuff that you can do, because of the, like, you still get your consistent draw. You, you just consistently have stuff on the board, whereas with ruby amethyst you're kind of holding your cards back and you're playing a slower game which is which is completely fine but you're more more so utilizing like your items and stuff like that so uh, i think personally maybe in like these early tournaments the the amber steel might just be i, I don't i don't want to say it might just be better but i think it might be utilized mm. uh, more efficiently if that, if that makes sense honestly i might bring amber steel because it's cheaper <laughs> <laughs> like the Ruby Amethyst deck is really expensive. And the, me and so what's funny is Kaba lives in Ireland. And in Ireland, the game is actually accessible by normal human beings. So if you live in the United States, that's not the case. <laughs> it's not the case. Like people in, in the US, and I'm sure this is true for other countries as well, are familiar, comfortable, and I don't know, skilled at scalping Pokemon already out of big box retailers. So yeah, I mean, Lorcan is already gone. I mean, that thing was gone as soon as it, someone started to bring it off the shelf or put it, put it out publicly. So you're never going to get that. You're going to get MSRP at any of those big box stores. So I know a lot of people like to treasure hunt it. Um, and then local game stores are selling boxes for $400 if they have it, which I didn't find a single, I found a single one that had it, a single one. And I know a lot of game stores locally single one that had a box for four hundred dollars so yeah the game is like that's the thing about this game is they really goofed the initial print run and distribution like it is i mean flesh and blood was flesh and blood let's okay at the, at the height of flesh and blood when it was the least accessible the most popular you could still buy it you know and it wasn't it, it wasn't gonna literally turbo you into poverty where this game is like first of all you can't buy it if you can I mean, it is four or five X the price it should be. I think, and it's, if you're going to play a local tournament, I just like, I don't know how you get the cards because I'm TCG player. We look at things like Rapunzel. It's like 50 bucks a piece, 50 bucks yep. a piece for non-foil. And that's only going up right now. Sasha, are you aware of their future plans on what their sort of reprint policy first for first chapter is going to be and what their, what their strategy is? Um, based what I've read on the internet, pretty much off like maybe the press releases or that was like, you know, propagated by a third party website. Um, I think it's pretty much print on demand and they're just going to like print it into the ground just so people have accessibility to play the game. I don't think they're wanting to foster the scalping culture. Uh, but yeah, what they end up actually doing is like anybody's guess, but that's pretty much the vibe that I got from Ravensburger. Sasha, as someone who's played a lot of card games and a lot of cards, and I know you've had some, you've had some, I don't know, some decks that you enjoy back in the day that you may have foiled or pimped out. What do you think about the Disney Lorcana's adherence to only cold foils of regular foils? I mean, that's fantastic. I hate my valuable cards like being damaged by the weather or just yeah. by, you know, you know, being in the booster packs themselves and warping like tacos. Uh, yeah. So having cards that are prim and straight awesome happy about that uh i do have some criticism that the cold foil doesn't look the best on every single possible card mm -hmm. in the set but i think you know have the quality happen first and then the aesthetic that, that is way better than the inverse where it doesn't matter because the card is unplayable yeah i wonder yeah. if uh when they reprint the set because they they plan to print the demand and they've been public about that if they will not reprint the enchanted slot I don't know. That'll be in. Enchanted is know. crazy. Like, how much do you guys think Elsa Enchanted costs? 
Uh, I don't know about Elsa. I know Enchanted Bell is between two fifty and three hundred dollars at the moment. What do you think? So Elsa I'd say is? Elsa's probably around around. I don't know. I, I'll say three, but it's probably more than that. Sasha, what do you think? Elsa has to be the chase one, right? Maybe. She has to be at the top of the mountain. I would say. Yeah, seven hundred dollars. What? <laughs> Bonkers. Oh Crazy. my god. Yeah, and then the regular Elsa is also not. Sasha, I was thinking. Um. Just want to get your thoughts. So I don't know if I linked you the list, but we kind of talked over at the Amber Steel list. So the Amber Steel list, like I said, it absolutely dunks on everything except Ruby Amethyst, which I think it's 45 and 55. It what is you, game. What do you think about teching Beast Mirror into that deck? Because they outcome- Yeah, I don't know why that. Yeah. yeah, I don't know why that card's not in the deck anyway, to be honest. Uh, you can ink it. It's yeah. like. So, like I would honestly sacrifice the Hakuna Matata math mm. and uh, just play Beast Mirror. Like, that's what I would probably do. Like, the only downside to having Beast Mirror in the deck is if your, you know, your fake Maleficent Sorceress, like, keeps actually keeping cards in your hand. Like, how often do you find yourself not having stuff, um, um, you know, to play? <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, that's pretty much it. But yeah. I think Beast Mirror is just such a staple. Like, it's, like, kind of absurd to me that card even exists. Yeah, for me, I wouldn't cut the Hakuna Matata but I would probably cut smash, some Smash. Uh, I think I would cut the Moana, and I might cut, like, the Prince Eric. Because, like, the Prince Eric Captain Hook is, like, okay, nobody's juicing us early. That's why we have access. Because those cards are just shit later in the game. They're not very good, right? It's like, well, you don't want to get juiced. Um, and they use, they can trade up, I guess, late in the game, so they're fine. But I'd probably cut those, because I do think that, like, maybe you don't need four Beast Mirror either, but I do think that Smash is actually one of the worst cards in the deck, and it's actually, like, a straight one-for-one slot-in for Beast Mirror. Actually, Beast Mirror costs less. So, yeah, maybe just, like, two Beast Mirrors is, like, all you need, because you just can't get to the point where you are in a state where you've been B-prepared, the opponent has a single draw engine, you haven't killed it with Beast yet, and they're they're utilizing their draw engine, and you're at zero cards, and if you draw Stitch, it's terrible, right? It, it doesn't draw you any cards, because you have no board presence because they B-prepared you. Like, you need some sort of engine yourself to keep up with that, to dig faster, to get to your Beast faster, to be able to get threats, because, like, you'll likely win the, mid- the early game against them uh, by quite a margin, and you want to get to a point where you can effectively sort of race them at the end right keep keep presenting threats keep taxing them out of single single uh, spot removal or full boot board removal in the form of be prepared so i do think that i do think that that's the card that i would look to put in the list if i was going to take steel amber uh to a tournament it's funny that you say that you want to maybe cut smash or one of the captain hooks or like how i'm suggesting maybe hakuna matata if the math works out for ariel is because you're you're playing with fire with consistency no matter what if you take out one of the cheap challenges, then suddenly that big stitch isn't as effective in some spots because mm-hmm. maybe you want to play cheap challenger and um, stitch at the same turn to get the reward. Um, same with Hakuna Matata. If you cut Smash, Smash is actually one of the best cards to have if you're playing Beast Mirror because it's like a free way to interact as you're turning through your deck. It just happens straight away. So there's like pros and cons with no matter what you cut. Yeah. Which is the fun part. You get to choose the risk. You have agency over where you want to actually lose games or win games. Yeah. I do think that this card, You Have Forgotten Me, which I think is just a great card. Just like, it's crazy. Because you're... Ooh. Oh, it's so good. Uh, but I do think it's actually bugged on Pixelborn right now. You actually can't cast this card unless your opponent has two or more cards. And the text says each opponent chooses and discards two cards. I feel like that wouldn't limit you from casting it. Right. Yeah, but you say are you saying if you top deck it and that's your your only card, like surely you can't play it, you discard nothing and then they just discard two. So you think it should work like that? Well, <clears throat> it should be agnostic of how many cards your opponent has in hand. So if your opponent has zero cards, because like Unpixelborn, if your opponent doesn't have two or more cards, you literally can't cast it. Like it, it won't let you. It won't let you drag the card. Mm. And this card shouldn't actually be checking to how many cards are in the hand before it is cast. That would that wouldn't really make any sense. So I think it's actually bugged. And still one of the most so this, busted cards. <laughs> yeah, this is the hard thing when we don't have comprehensive rules. We're not sure if it's like pretty much every other card game, which is fulfill the effects as much as possible and then it like kind of fizzles, or whether the effects need to be guaranteed for it to be cast. Like, yeah, it's hard to know. Can I ask you about comprehensive rules, judge programs, etc.? Like, that is obviously pivotal to sort of letting a grassroots tournament scene foster and i don't know come about right and we don't have that yet like what do you think is what are your thoughts on that first of all ravensburger not releasing that with the release of their game and to what detriment 
is it to people trying to host local tournaments and trying to play this game competitively? Well, I think you only add risk to the play experience by not having it there. As soon as two people disagree on something, which is inevitable because we all have interpretations of different card game backgrounds or no card game backgrounds at all. There's just a genuine curiosity of how does this work. Uh, arguments happen. Uh, you know, someone feels bad, someone feels good. It's some zero, usually some negative. Uh, so yeah, I think it's kind of a punt by not having even just, you know, an FAQ for like the most common, mm-hmm. um, you know, weird rules things that could happen um for example um the discard two cards card can i play this like every card in the companion app should just have like a quick faq on scenarios like i think that's like a very low bar to set and whether around the judge program that kind of is a big question around op and whether or not that is something they want to really delve into and actually, you know, foster. I think it's cool to foster a judge community because it just has people who are arbiters and like advocates for the game. I just the more people you have singing praise, I don't see the downside with that. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting because I know Ravensburger is not planning to do any official organized play, you know, hosted by them for at least a year. But I do think that Lorcana is a game, and now playing it. Uh, quite a bit and constructed, seeing what the meta looks like, like the replayability, the depth, etc. Seems like a game that would really take off in terms of grassroots. And I talked to a lot of grassroots tournament organizers when I was at Flesh and Blood Nationals a couple of weekends ago, and they all want to do it. And the reasons why they can't are judge program, concierge rules, but actually the most important is none of them have product. Like, none of them have product. So they can't, no prize support, nothing. Um, so I'll, yeah. Tell them I'll, I'll, I'll sell them some products. Yeah, those are products. Yeah. <laughs> Just five hundred dollars. Look us up. Yeah, it's uh, funny because like, yeah. like, I I bought I bought I bought the thirty eight packs yesterday. Just in in like thirty eight singles. Wow. How uh, the fuck so, did you do that? It's so funny because the but the the funniest thing was I walked into the shop and of course like the the lady's like what's the obsession with all these? She's like some some dude came in yesterday and spent a thousand like euros. On, on these things, she's like, what's going on? I'm like, it's good for you, right? It's just more money. She's like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Wasn't it like but, some uh, scholastic? What was it? What kind of store was it? Oh, it was it was like a it was like a school bookstore. It's it's so weird. It's like something that would that would sell like sticker packs and then but the, but it had like it wasn't like uh do you know what the craziest thing about it was? Is if if this was anywhere else, right? You know the way most places I've went to, to buy Lorcana stuff, it's all behind the counter, right? Yeah. Like I went to like an actual card game shop and they had this stuff like stapled and stuck to it. So if somebody actually tried to take the box, Gosh. they couldn't. But here it was like one of the stands where everything was just on display. So you could just have like kids or anyone, like if you really wanted, you just take them. So it's like it, it it's it's crazy to me that when I was at the Ravensburger booth in at Gamescom when they're like, you know, counting the cards, making sure people aren't taking one or two. But then there's certain places that obviously don't like they're just getting stock in. They don't yeah. actually know the, the value of some of the stuff that one card in this pack could be three hundred seven hundred dollars, you know? Um but yeah, it was it was kinda crazy. I think a lot of the stock is gone now, but we uh myself and my girlfriend, we went on a bit of a scavenger hunt yesterday, which was which was pretty fun. We went to like three different places. We found this like little tiny like school books shop with a whole stack of Lorcana stuff. I'm like, oh, godsend I'll, amazing. T- I'll tell you lakana is so egregiously scalped right now that it would be profitable to, ha- to have carla tell you what little school store in ireland has stock and to buy a flight that day fly to ireland buy product and then sell it you would make money you would definitely oh make God. money at this point because you're getting boxes for like a hundred bucks, where here they're four hundred and they're only going up. I mean, I mean, I I bought the most I've bought is I bought a box. This is even for, like the most I spent was there was one box was one eighty at one stage where they were a little bit more rare, but most of the boxes I bought were like one forty because I bought them at the actual booth. And then all, all the singles here they're about like six bucks, which is I think standard. But then there's some places places selling like singles for like twelve, fifteen a pop. I'm like, man, like what? Crazy, honestly. Y'all are spoiled. All right. Well, we, we covered a lot today. We talked about the meta. We talked about constructed fundamentals, um, et cetera. So I want to thank you, Sasha, for coming on. I'm, I'm keen to sort of uh, explore more Lorcana with you. I know you and I have been playing games together now for a long time. So hopefully there will be tournaments to travel to. Um, but Oh, actually, can I make a note of something? Mm-hmm. There is one big tournament that was announced. Uh, it's in Miami on October 21st, I believe. We can get more details for you guys. Maybe we'll leave a link in the description where we can get more details. Sasha, are you oh, in, you guys are you in Dallas, Sasha? Where you? Uh, I'm in Dallas. I'm in Dallas. Is that the uh, weekend? That, of, week. or? that is the weekend that uh, we're doing the thing in Dallas. 
Okay, so so we could we could uh maybe divert. Yeah, actually, maybe yeah. Divert. <laughs> Instead of playing the Flesh and Blood Calling tournament in Dallas, which is a major tournament for Flesh and Blood, we could go play Lorcana in Miami potentially. You know what the the thing for me is that kind of sucks is I'm very much considering I'm in the states at that time because it's TwitchCon that weekend, and I'm thinking of blowing off one of the days of TwitchCon to. <laughs> down to miami which sounds kind of crazy but who, who knows what, what i mean are they playing for how much uh i have to look it i have to look it up again but i don't i don't know if it's anything crazy but it was the biggest one that was announced um interesting so far so we, we can we can leave a link in the description we can talk about it maybe a little bit more next week as well yeah 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 <laughs> interesting all right sasha thanks for coming on i just want to give you um some time to talk about where people can find you what you're up to etc Cool. Thanks again uh, so much for having me. Uh, for what it's worth, I'm mainly active on Twitter slash X, whatever it's called these days, at Marker Victory. Um, I talk a lot about card games. I'm, I'm making a few card games myself, if you're interested about that. I used to be a designer for Flesh and Blood, used to be a competitor for Flesh and Blood, Magic, a lot of other stuff in between. Uh, love both these guys. I've met them uh, power this year, and Brendan, I don't even want to remember when. And yeah, just tons of good times ahead. Uh, watch the channel they're awesome and yeah thanks again for the time yeah well for everybody listening if you enjoyed this podcast if you enjoyed podcast in the past the number one thing you can do to help us out is leave us a review on apple podcast or spotify as a video version of this on youtube at youtube.com slash I think it's Podcana. I'm trying to remember the exact URL, but search Podcana, you'll find it. Um, and you can hit subscribe while you're there. Uh, we're we're climbing up. We're starting from you know, start somewhere. So I think we're at like 200 something, 300. But I'm telling you, if you're listening to this, you can make that change. You can be that change um, and hit that subscribe button. We're all on Twitter at BrendanAPG, at Kalatech underscore CG, and at Marco Victory. Until next time, I guess we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks everybody for listening. <laughs>